In 2016, David Brooks, the New York Times editorialist, published the book, The Road to Character. I know some of you have read it, but I recommend it to everyone. I think it's a book that speaks to the times in which we are in. And he says this in the introduction, we can shoot for something higher than happiness. We have a chance to take advantage of everyday occasions to build virtue in ourselves and be of service to the world. We can shoot for something higher than happiness. He goes on in the introduction to put two ideas in opposition together. He asks the question, are you building resume virtues or are you building eulogy virtues? Resume, resume virtues are the things that we develop so that people will think highly of us and that we can get a promotion. Eulogy virtues, he says, are the things that they'll say at our funeral. And I would add, a lot longer after that. We move to this passage in our series in Philippians. It's the fourth week in a row. Paul has been moving us completely into a Christ life. And the subtext has been how to have joy in this world. Now, we know it's something that we're pursuing. Uh, some people came up to me between service. I'm sorry if you're a Yaley, but uh, Yale has its most popular elective that's going on right now. 1,500 students that go to it. They're not able to find space for it. And the theme of the uh, course is the pursuit of happiness. There's a recognition that a lot of the things that we have put out there as attainments in our world are no longer providing happiness. And they're certainly not providing joy. Now, some of you are stepping into this series midstream, so I have to give you this powerful analogy that really summarizes joy. Think back to Pastor Nathan doing the opening children's sermon, and there's the word joy coming down the wall. It's an acronym, and this is how you get joy. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. It's as simple as that, and it's as hard as that. But what we're being told is to start with ourselves, and Paul is giving us a way to get away from ourselves. In the first chapter, he dives us completely into Jesus. Last week, we saw how he moved us to start thinking about others better than ourselves. And now this week, he's going to tell us how to view ourselves. And it's interesting, he has to come back to Jesus to do that. Paul shows us how he used to build his life on resume virtues, and now he's going to show us how to have eulogy virtues, how to have a life that's sustaining and meaningful. Let's go to the text and see what it says. Now, this text is so rich, I'm just going to let it speak to us today. Uh, I want you to take your Bibles out so you can follow. This is my favorite passage in the Bible. And those of you who've been with me now, this is the third week in a row I've said that. Uh, this is certainly my favorite book of the New Testament apart from the Gospels. Paul drives us into a life of meaning, and by, by driving, he exhorts us how to get there, and he's giving us an opportunity to live outside of the illusion of happiness and to move to incredible joy. And he starts in verse 1 with these words, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. He says it one more time, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, he says, finally. This isn't the last time he's going to say finally in this letter. 
Paul loves these long sentences. Uh, someone in the first service said, I'm so glad you explained everything because I didn't get it the first time reading through. He has these dangling participles and these run-on sentences, and Paul will say something, and he'll say, okay, fine, I'm going to give you the last message, and then he thinks about something else and does a rabbit trail, and I love how the Holy Spirit's hovering over this whole process. He's kind of, let Paul go for a while and bring him back in to the end, and he says, here's the final message, rejoice, and I don't have a problem telling you again that because it's actually good for you that you would rejoice. I've been preaching to you for 11 years, and I've been preaching the basic three same messages over and over and over. And I wonder sometimes on Saturday, are they going to look at me and say, is he saying that again? Well, I'm just going to take a clue from Paul. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To tell you the same things is no trouble for me because it's good for you. And then he goes on. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, he has some harsh things to say about some evildoers. Now, it's interesting. These evildoers would be very religious people. He talks about we are the circumcision. Circumcision was the mark that God gave to show His people that everything began with Him. It was a covenant reminder. It was to show that it was in God's steadfast love, His pursuit of the people that He brought them into a nation. It was a reminder of all of His goodness. But the mark of circumcision, which was to be a reminder, had slowly become a covenant maker for them. And they began to take confidence in being able to do the things of the covenant. So circumcision became important to them. Following the rules became important to them. And they began finding a religious identity and doing all the right things. We've done that as the people of God throughout history. It's the older brother syndrome that we find in the story of the prodigal God. God gives us life, and we turn around and try to earn His life. And Paul is telling them, this is not the way to go. There must be a group in the church in Philippi that are saying, put all of these Jewish regulations in. Now, this may seem like it's really far long ago, but when I was a kid, I grew up in the holiness movement. And we knew that all the people that were good Christians did not smoke, drink, or chew, or date the girls who do. I mean, it was just understood. If you fit in that box... You were in Christ. And we have this tendency, even when God has rescued us, to become religious and somehow try to earn our way in. Paul says this, put no confidence in the flesh. Nothing whatsoever in your life. If you want true confidence, it's going to undergird you. It's going to come from another source. Last week, Paul told us, work out your salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says it's a very important thing to do. We should do it with trembling and fear. But he's saying you're not going to attain to this. Have no confidence in any of the good things in your life, any of the things of resume virtues. Then Paul goes on and he lists some of his own. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh... 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's showing his past life, and he pulls up his spiritual resume. Now, in this corner of the world, we're really good at building resumes, right? It's all part of our lives where we live. Uh, We start with our kids really early. Now, I'm going to say something that's probably going to step on a number of people's toes, and you may have been the person that did this in front of me. I'm sorry for saying it, but I really have to call it out because it's becoming troublesome to me. We start building our kids' resumes in nursery school. There's something seriously wrong with that. Seriously wrong. Now, if you were the person that did this, please, I'm not saying this to make you feel bad, but I'm just using it as an example. I've had people in my office crying because their kids did not get into the right nursery school. Remember, I'm not being judgmental. I'm just calling this out. Because then we pour that image into our kids and we have this idea that if they get this education and this education, they're going to get this life of meaning. Now, I'm not against education. I have two masters and a PhD. I obviously value education. I taught as a professor for seven years. I'm constantly teaching you. Education is not wrong, but when my identity is in my education and it's a means to something that will give me value in life, I am going to be disappointed at some point because that's going to lead me to a life of happiness and happiness is fleeting. That's why they have courses at Yale, The Pursuit of Happiness. Are you with me? Is it time to call it out, folks? We need to call it out. There's a lot of things that we could put our confidence in. See, the issue is not the good things in our life. The issue is when those good things become ultimate things and we find our identity in them. I don't know if, how many of you watch the show This Is Us. I'm a late bloomer to the show. I wait till people watch it and after I get enough things, I go and binge on Netflix. And so my day off, I can knock off five or six of those episodes in a row. It's a great story for those of us who grew up in that era. You see so much of the culture that's bleeded into who we are as a people. It's the story about this family that adopts this little African-American boy, Randall, into them. It's the whole construction of identity, finding meaning in life. It's powerful. It's really an interesting show. Randall becomes an adult, he becomes very successful, and out of a reflex, because he has been adopted, he decides to adopt a teenage African-American girl who's coming from a difficult situation. Some of you are remembering the details of this story. He's trying to find his own identity in the adoption process. But the mother comes and takes the, uh, the teenage girl away. And at least two times at the end of the show, and maybe three, he says this to her, this is my last advice to you, Get good education, because if you get good education, you will get the big house and the nice car. That was his parting word to her. Now, was there anything wrong in saying get good education? Absolutely not. 
But where he was taking her in the pursuit of that education was leading her down a road where she was not going to have joy. So as Paul goes through all of his resume, and as you and I could go through all of our resume, the things that give us meaning, Paul says this in verse 7, but whatever gain I had in all of those things in my resume, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Hear the language here. He's not saying those things are bad, but I count them as loss for the sake of Christ. His Pharisaic training prepared him to be a good missionary. His experience of buffeting his body religiously gave him the possibility to work out his salvation with fear and trembling with God. These were okay things, but compared to the sake of knowing Christ, he considered them as lost. Listen, folks, stick with me now. We're going into some deep waters What Paul is offering us is not a fleeting life of happiness. He's offering us joy, and if we're going to get to joy, we're going to have to get there in the way Scripture tells us to get there. Paul goes on and says this in verse 8, Indeed, in case we've lost attention, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul becomes vulgar here. We've translated it nice out of our puritanical uh, situation, but Paul is saying everything is rubbish. It's from the dung pile compared to the sake of knowing Christ. Not just an intellectual knowing, because Paul went into the depths of being in a daily communion with Jesus and it changed everything about him. How could Paul have joy in the face of such difficult circumstances? How could Paul have joy in the face of so much opposition? It's because he always had Jesus. He knew Jesus. All those other things didn't matter to him. You could take all of his resume virtues away from him and he would be like, I'm doing fine because I still have Jesus. And it set him up for a life that was different. He goes on and says this, To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, before he says, I have no confidence in the flesh, but what does he have confidence in? Why is Paul so bold? He has confidence in the righteousness of Christ. Listen to what he's saying here. He's been trying to tell us through this whole letter. Come on, folks, come with me on this one. This is big time. This will change everything. This will take you from casual Christianity to the depths of what Jesus has for you to give you joy. We're moving to another plane right now. We're going to another place. What's said in Scripture is that though Jesus was perfect, he came and took our sin. We give him sin, and what does he do? He takes his robe of righteousness, and he puts it on us, and it changes everything about our reality. That means nobody can do anything to me, no situation can come to me, nothing that will rob me for the joy that's in my life because He is everything. Nobody can get under your skin. No circumstance can undo you. That's your inheritance, saints. That's what He's giving you. I had a woman say to me this week, she said something kind of fresh, and she said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. And I said, oh, don't feel bad. People more important than you have never been able to offend me. (laughs) Now, I knew her well enough that she could laugh at that. But what's my point? When Jesus is everything, you get to a point in life where you don't really care what other people think. 
You quit living from a resume virtue perspective and you live completely from a eulogy uh, virtue perspective. And it's liberating. Paul's going to go on and say, you know, you can have a life without anxiety. Wouldn't that be something, folks? Seriously. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? And the truth of the matter is, most of us can't even imagine what life is like without anxiety. And I'm just going to be straightforward. It's because Jesus is a commodity to us that we use. He's not everything. When Jesus becomes everything, it changes everything about our identity and our purpose. That's why I like to use Father Richard Rohr's phrase, nothing to prove, nothing to protect. Ooh. Come on, saints, that's your inheritance. That's your inheritance. We think, well, Paul, so now you can just relax and take it easy. I love the way Paul finishes this. So that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. All of us sitting here today would love to be like the Apostle Paul. I would love to be half the person the Apostle Paul is. And here he is after declaring that his life and his identity says, you know what? What my goal is for the rest of the way out? I want to know Christ more. In the power of his resurrection, he's saying, in that present risenness of Christ that changes everything about my reality and the fellowship even of sharing in his sufferings for the sake of the gospel. He throws this phrase at the end that could be confusing, that by all means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It almost sounds like he's unsure about this. You have to read him through the context of other things he's saying. But Paul is saying, I just want to keep running so that I finish the race well and make it to the other side. So what's my so what this morning? There's only one way to absolute joy. It's a spiritual standing rooted only in Christ, where everything else of this world is considered as rubbish to us in comparison. And I want you to invite you to have joy. Why am I so serious about this message? It's because all week long we're getting what I would call local liturgies that are telling us just the opposite story. As a society, we've developed a gospel of self-trust. A gospel of self-trust. Some of the contemporary mottos are, you are special, trust yourself. You've heard these things in advertisements this week. Be true to yourself. Um, that's Y-O-J, that's, that's a life of yaj. Joy doesn't start with self. It begins with Jesus. Chart your own destiny. It is your responsibility to do great things because you are great. 
You know the hard thing about these? These are all partial truths. In the same way that Satan came to Jesus and offered him partial scriptures, these all have a ringing of possibility because there's elements of truth. It is your responsibility to do great things. You are great. No, it is your responsibility to steward the great opportunities God gives you because he is great. That's what the biblical message is. In his book, uh, The Road to Character, uh, Brooks cites two commencement dresses, one by Ellen DeGeneres, TV talk show host. She said this to the students, my advice to you is to be true to yourself and everything will be fine. Well, how's that working? <laughs> be true to yourself. What happens when Jackie's true to self is different than my true to self and we com have combat? Now we got trouble. And by the way, I preach too long all the time, so you don't need that watch. <laughs> I had to get the last word in, you know, on these. <laughs> Pastor banter. The other commencement dress was from Mario Batoli, celebrity chef. He said this, follow your own truth expressed consistently by you. I want to say something to universities who invite people like this to be their commencement speakers, but that's a whole different story. Popular reading book by Elizabeth Gilbert, Eat, Pray, and Love. Now, that sounds like a very safe book. I'm one of six men who read it. I'm really good at the first two parts, eating and praying. I haven't caught up on the loving part yet. This is what she says. God himself manifests through my own voice from within my own self. God dwells within you as you yourself, exactly the way you are. You say, well, why are you rehearsing this? I just want you to know from Monday to Saturday, you are being bombarded with liturgies that are giving you a different gospel. The Girl Scouts Handbook, the original one had an ethic, ethic of self-sacrifice. In 1980, the very middle of it was put yourself on center stage. If you gain perspective on your own ways and feelings and thinking and actions, then you will be able to make it. Now, folks, this isn't something that's just happened in the 50 years. This has been going on for five centuries. From the 1400s in monasticism, when the whole process of switching out the center of the universe from God to man, we've been on this journey moving this way. But it's picking up pace in the time we're in. Most of us have read Invictus that was written in 1875. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And we've slowly bought this as a gospel for a better life. The Apostle Paul says, I love you too much as Christ followers to let you stay there. Give up that gospel, find fullness in Jesus, and watch the joy come back. So what's the now what? Give up any sense of meritocratic life where you feel like you're earning your way in and give yourself to unmerited favor 
where God pours all of his life into you. Here's the craziest thing. God paid this price of pouring out the blood of his own son, the very life of Jesus, so that he could give us the gift of abundant and eternal life. And we've spent a lot of our time trying to buy that gift back. And Jesus is here today, and he's saying, I have everything for you. Please. I don't have trouble saying it to you again because it's for your good. Let Jesus be everything and watch all the other pieces line up. Amen.